Good morning. I'd like to extend a special greeting and welcome to our uh, folks who are visiting from live stream from the video camera here. And it's great, to, uh, it's great to see everybody here in the audience as well. Several weeks ago, I had the privilege of um, doing a message on the Beatitudes. And I talked about the first Beatitude, which is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you're here, you might remember, maybe not, probably not, but if uh, <clears throat> we defined, I defined the, uh, to be poor in spirit is to be, have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. And that perspective is a coin with two sides. And on the one hand, uh, my perspective, understanding who I am before a holy God produces humility. And so um, to, be, to be humble before God, just the awesome um, power of God produces humility. And the other side of the coin is to, is to hope because we are created in his image. And he, dis, he humbled himself and came to earth and died on the cross and was raised again. And so that ought to give us hope. And it's the first beatitude, being poor in spirit, that establishes the foundation for the other eight that follow. So to this morning, I'd like to talk with you about the second beatitude found in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, like most of the other beatitudes, it's a contradiction. And it flies in the face of conventional wisdom, not only in the, of the person who heard it in Jesus' day, but also in our own time. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. John MacArthur uh, paraphrases, happy are the sad, to elevate sort of the contradiction. All right, well, in Roman number one in your notes, there's a mourning that comes from covetousness. And I think it's useful to bring up and I'll mention that here in a minute. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we read the story of Ahab. And Ahab uh, coveted his neighbor Naboth's vineyard. He wanted to grow some plants. My sense is it was some kind of food supplement, some kind of uh, herbs and so forth, an herb garden. And so he, uh, Naboth wouldn't sell it. He said, this is part of my inheritance. I don't want to sell it. And so Ahab was sad. And Jezebel, a name which has become synonymous with an evil woman, Jezebel, his wife, said, why are you sad? And, and Ahab said, well, because Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. And so Jezebel creates a conspiracy, has people accusing Naboth of doing and saying bad things, has him killed. And then she goes to Ahab and says, okay, you can have your vineyard now. Now, I wouldn't normally associate uh, this kind of example of greed and covetousness with a holy teaching like a beatitude, except for one reason. When I'm grieving and I'm sad about something, I'm upset about something, it's useful to ask myself the question, why? Am I grieving because of a loss of a friendship, of a family member, of a, of a circumstance that is legitimate, or am I grieving because of, like Ahab, for covetousness? 
Am I grieving because my personal rights have been violated? Am I grieving because somebody has a better job than I do, a better car, a better house, a better life? And so it's useful when I'm grieving to ask myself the question why, because it may be a consequence of sin. I may be grieving for not a good reason for which I need to repent. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, there's a mourning, there's a sorrow of the world that leads to death, it leads to sin, and it leads to death. Number two in your notes, there is a mourning that comes from my own awareness of sin, awareness of my own sin. Back to the same passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, a letter that he is referring to here is considered by Bible scholars to be a lost letter. Apparently, there was a letter between 1 Corinthians and what we know to be 2 Corinthians. There was another letter in there. And Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. He says, he says um, uh, the subject of that letter was a rebuke to the Corinthian church. And he um, refers to it here. Again, I should sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy, he refers to this letter. So continuing on chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry. Again, referring to that lost letter. Though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us for no in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Did you catch that? Godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. My family and I were at a camp a couple weeks ago, uh, a Christian camp that had the speaker Josh McDowell and his son Sean. And Mr. McDowell is 80 years old now. You wonder when he's going to teeter over, but he's still in good shape. He's a spry old guy and very sharp from the, from the pulpit. And he made an observation about this generation that, I was, that, uh, that stuck with me. He said, when people walk away, people come to faith and then they will ultimately walk away. He says it's his observation that usually it occurs because of the lack of the appreciation of grace, of grace. The lack of sorrow that leads to repentance leading to salvation. When people walk away from faith, it's because they've never been fully aware or conscious of their own sin. When people walk away from faith, frequently it's a consequence of them not being, un, not being aware of their need of salvation. And so to walk away is not a hard thing. Interesting thought. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of a man named Bill Russell. And Bill, Bill, I looked up Bill Russell. I think there was a basketball player by that name. And uh, there was also a guy who wrote books. And I'm not sure who, well, I don't think it was a basketball player. But this Bill Russell had a Bible study in his home. And he was asked uh, by a friend to invite an unsaved person. And this unsaved person, I'll call him Mr. Williams, came to this Bible study. And Mr. Williams really had a good time. He enjoyed the fellowship. He was welcomed by the group. And he was particularly moved by the prayer time during the Bible study. And so after a few weeks, 
Mr. Russell gets a phone call from Mr. Williams. And he says, I'd like you to pray for my son. He was shot in the eye with a pellet gun. I can't imagine how painful that would be. He says he's at risk of losing his sight. He has a consult with a surgeon. And so, um, so they did. They prayed for him in the, in the Bible study. And then a, f- a few days later, he said, my daughter is in my house and she's wreaking havoc in our living room because of a cocaine addiction. Mr. Williams said, I had to hold her down while the police came and put handcuffs on her. It was an awful experience. Please pray for my daughter. And so they did. Well, then later they found out that the surgery for his son's eye went well and he had cataract they had to remove and they put him on contact lenses he could see just fine. And so things were starting to look up again. And then he got the devastating news that his mother-in-law had a heart attack and died. He was very close to his mother-in-law. He was devastated by the loss. Three things in very short succession tragedies in his life. It's possible that Mr. Williams was, would experience a crisis of faith. Frequently, people reject God because of grieving events that happen in our lives. But that's not what happened with Mr. Williams. A couple days later, Mr. Russell got another phone call, and this was from Mr. Williams' wife. He says, my husband came home, and he walked upstairs to our bedroom without saying a word. And later I heard yelling in our bedroom. And being a good wife, I went up and snooped. I listened at the door to see what was going on. She said, my husband was broken. He was weeping and dumping out to the Lord every ugly sin in his life and saying, I am spiritually bankrupt. I ask you now, Father, through Jesus Christ to come into my life. The psalmist David said, a broken and a contrite spirit, O God, thou will not despise. I love that verse. Mr. Williams experienced what it means to have grace, an acknowledgement of his own sin and the recognition of his own need for salvation. The morning that produces repentance leading to salvation and peace with God. Amen. Number three in your notes, there is a morning that comes from the harshness of life. And this is probably what most of us think about when we think about morning. Jeremiah, for example, most of the characters of the Bible had things that they grieved about, had hard things happen in their lives. Jeremiah is referred to the weeping prophet because of his uh, concern for the lostness of the nation of Israel. In Psalm 55, there's a song of David where he recounts the depth of pain that the heart knows in disappointment and sorrow. He cries out, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away and would lodge in the wilderness. Ever feel like that? Ever wish you could just check out? I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. My mom would often make that comment. Uh, My dad was in business. Sometimes Friday payroll would come. We didn't have enough in the account to cover. And mom would just say, I'd like to just be done with this. I'd like to go to heaven. I'm, I'm done with all this. Morning is a part of life. 
The scripture uses nine different words to describe mourning in both the Old and New Testament. Paul mourned for the church. Timothy mourned over disappointment in ministry. Jesus mourned at the death of Lazarus and later over Jerusalem. Well, what do you do? What can I do personally to be comforted? Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a couple things I'd like to suggest. Number one, establish a routine. Establish a routine. There's a guy named Hans Selye that I learned about in school. He was a Swiss-American endocrinologist. And he was conducting research on fuzzy little lab animals. And he was injecting them with hormones, little bunnies and little rats, probably not as didn't quite become attached to the rats, but he had these little animals and he'd inject hormones in them to see what would happen to their organs, which means that he had to open them up later and look at their organs. And um, what he discovered, that injecting little fuzzy animals with hormones really didn't do that much to their organs. But he noticed that their thymus gland got smaller. And he was curious about that. He wondered why. And over time, he determined that the thymus gland got smaller, not because of anything to do with hormones, but it got smaller because he was poking these little fuzzy creatures with needles. And it would hurt, and they didn't like it, and they became stressed. And so Cellier developed in the 50s the whole discipline of what we understand about stress today. He published a book in 1956 called The Stress of Life. And the conclusion to this research is that when we become stressed, there's a whole cascade of chemicals that are released in our bodies. And they affect our brain. And he divided these cascade into three different stages, one of whom we, we, we now commonly refer to as fight or flight. There's a toxic chemicals that God created in us to be able to defend ourselves or to flee in the presence of danger. Well, that same, that same thing happens when we grieve, when we're stressed. The chemicals in turn are influenced by how we respond. So the chemicals are released in our body and it creates a feeling of depression, a feeling of grief and we can influence them in return by how we react. And one of the things that we can do to influence them in return is to establish routine. Finally, things to do that keep our hands occupied. Similar things happen when I travel to Africa. I go to, I, I get eight hours off my schedule when I go to Africa, and while I'm there, I'm usually fine. But when I get back, I'm completely messed up by jet lag, and it's getting worse as I get older. It takes longer to react. But one of the things that I can do to get my balance back, my, um, I'm trying to think of the, I'll think of it later, the uh, cycle, the hormonal cycle in my body, to get it established back, it was to establish routine. I get up at the same time, I go to bed at the same time, I eat pretty much the same things at the same time every day, and I do the same things, and that trains my body to go back to balance. Circadian rhythm is what I was just trying to think of. We use a similar approach when we deal with people who are confused. We have um, 
people with, dis- with disability, with dementia in our adult foster homes. And when they first come to the house, they're bewildered by the strangeness of everything. And they don't know why they're bewildered, which can you imagine how awful that must be? They don't, know, they don't know these people. They don't know the situation. My room isn't where it was. My stuff isn't where it was. And everything is just crazy. And what tends to happen is that that, that uh, cascade that Cellier described becomes magnified. And we have to give them sedation to calm them down. And so how do you treat that? Well, you establish routine. They see the same people every day. And they get up at the same time. And they do the same things every day. And that begins to calm them down to where they don't need sedation and sometimes certainly not as much and sometimes none at all. So one of the things that I can do to combat the effects of mourning in my own life is to establish a routine. That's a practical thing. Number two in your notes, control your thinking. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I was thinking as I wrote this uh, passage in my notes, conversation I had probably 10 years ago where we were talking about this verse. I was talking about this with a manager at the hospital probably 20 years ago now. And uh, she said, oh, I I know that verse. And she quoted it to me. And she's not a believer. But she quoted the verse to me. She said that was our sorority um, uh, theme. So whenever we had a sorority meeting, we would quote that verse at the beginning of our meeting uh, at the University of Washington. I thought, wow, University of Washington, Philippians 4.8. How times have changed. Philippians 4.8 is not just merely good faith. It's not just merely a good religious practice. It is each time I harbor or nurture a negative thought and I dwell on that and I pursue that in my mind, I, create, I recreate all over again Cellier's cascade of chemicals in my body that affect my emotions. And it gets really hard to change that. Number three, in your notes, find comfort in friends. Ours is a one another faith. Ours is a one another faith. For as we have many members of one body, Romans 12, 4, but all of the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We have a responsibility as members of the body of Christ to promote each other's well-being and to look at people, to be aware, to be sensitive when people are down and to offer a hand up. When I think of my own experience with the loss of a loved one or having the slats kicked out from under me from changing career or just whatever kind of loss, I've come to depend on my family, my wife Sue and uh, my kids Grief has a way of focusing the conversation. The things that ought to be peripheral in my thinking tend to become peripheral. Things like job and schedules. And the things that need to be focused tend to become focused. Like subjects like the nature of God, my relationship with Jesus Christ, my faith, eternity, 
or life's purpose. All those things tend to come and center focus in the context of grief, when I'm, particularly when I'm contemplating my own, moral, my own mortality. I had a conversation with my brother David. We had a family conference in California when he was given the diagnosis of, of astrosarcoma, a brain tumor that ultimately took his life. And I remember he, he had the stage. Everybody was curious to know what he was thinking. And he expressed concern about what he was going to go through. He went through several surgeries and some chemotherapy, wondered about the pain, wondered about the discomfort. And he wondered about what would happen to his family when he passed and how they would cope and how they would get by. But his faith was as solid as stone. And he confessed his trust in Jesus Christ his recognition that God is sovereign and that God has ordained even this to happen in his life. It was on full display. And as a result of that, the conversation was magnificent. The conversation was, to me, instructive. The conversation was memorable. C.S. Lewis observed, one's faith, never does one's faith become quite so important as when it becomes a matter of life and death. It's likely that in a group this size that there's somebody here grappling with mourning, with grief. For some, there's a temptation to isolate, to become closed, to separate myself from other people. I just don't want to have to deal with it. To you, I say, be careful. Take care. Take care that you do not miss out on the treasure to be mined, not only for yourself, but for your family, only in such circumstances. There is a treasure to be mined only in the context of grief. Number four, and you know it's kind of find comfort in God. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis got married late in life to a lady named Jory Gresham. <clears throat> they were married about a month before I was born in 1956. He was apparently quite a catch, and he was uh, lots of folks, lots of women were after him, and an American woman caught his attention. She was an artist and a poet. Well, shortly after. She, uh, they were married, she, she got bone cancer. And um, the treatment for bone cancer at that time was, was not as advanced as it is now, obviously. And so she had a horrendous experience. This experience, by the way, is depicted in the movie Shadowlands with Anthony Hopkins. Now, I don't vouch for Hollywood in terms of accuracy, but the story is very well told. And there are lots of great Lewis quotes uh, if you're in the mood for a good flick. So um, Lewis had, prior to this experience, had written a book called The Problem of Pain. And he wrote The Problem of Pain to respond to people who were walking away from their faith as a consequence of the travesty of World War II. People were just, you know, if this, if this is what God can permit this, then, then I... They, people, when that, that happens, we tend to punish. We presume to punish God by denying him, by walking. Isn't that ridiculous? We tend to punish God by presuming that he doesn't exist. So um, 
he, he published The Problem of Pain, and then he went through this horrendous experience with his wife and bone cancer, where she ultimately died. So he published another book anonymously, and this one was called A Grief Observed. And some of the great quotes about grieving come from A Grief Observed, where he adjusted several of his views about pain. One of the quotes out of the book is, God whispers to me in my pleasures, and he speaks to me in my conscience, but he shouts to me in my pain. God gets my full attention in my pain. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, Matthew 11, 28 and 9. He leads me, the psalmist says, beside the still waters, in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We know that we, those who mourn, will be comforted because we know the character of God. The second beatitude about mourning becomes relevant and significant in the context of the first beatitude, and that is being poor in spirit, having a recognition of who I am before a holy God. That's what gives power to the comforting words of Scripture. All right. By the way, I had a comment last night after this message, and I talked about how to in be engaged in comforting myself, participating in my own comfort, having a relationship with friends, pursuing my relationship with God, establishing a routine, and, and discipline, having discipline about what I think about. A lady came up to me afterward and she said, she described a, a devastating loss that she had experienced years ago. And she said, I followed that model. The same model, controlling what I think about, having a routine. She says, it was hard. It was tough work. But she says, in about a year, it took me about a year to feel normal again. But she says, now when something happens, I go right back to that model, that same discipline. And, I th and when she was describing this, I thought, I think that's what they mean by sanctification. It's using the tough times in life to grow and to experience and become more Christ-like and to become more dependent, recognize my dependence upon Christ, not only for my physical, but my emotional well-being. All right, number two, how to lend comfort to someone who is mourning, to someone else. We are a member of the body. We have responsibility. Number one, to be courageous. Oftentimes when people are mourning, um, we don't want to get, be around them too much because we feel awkward. We don't know what to say. We're afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. And so we, we leave them at arm's length. She's, James tells us that the best faith is the faith that is put into action. Show me, in James 2.18, show me your faith by your works. 
Romans, uh, Paul talks in Romans, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Ours is a one another faith. This passage in Romans 12 is the conclusion, is the summation. It's the therefore after the great uh, doctrinal and ecclesiastical teaching that he brings in the first 11 chapters. Bear one another's burdens, he says in Galatians 6, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love God, to love neighbor as yourself. Number two in your notes, it's not your, prop, it's not your job to fix their pain. You can't, and it's foolish to try. It's not your job to fix their pain. When I worked in the hospital, I worked with about 21 managers, and uh, I would meet with them every month. And invariably, they, they would come to my office, and they'd have a list. Typically, there was some crisis that they had to contend with. And I learned from harsh experience, these were mostly women, that I learned from harsh experience not to try to fix it out of the box because it insulted them. I know what I'm doing. I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to hear me out. And we learned together that giving voice to your problem, to, your, to the issue, brings clarity. It forces me to organize my thinking in my mind in order to articulate it and to spell it out. And then the solutions tend to become obvious. They become apparent. Sometimes I'd ask a question, or sometimes I'd offer a suggestion. I'm a guy, I can't help it. When you're dealing with somebody in pain, there's a temptation to offer platitudes, especially Christians. They're in a better place now. Look at what you have to be thankful for. It's all part of God's plan. Christians who are in mourning know all these things. They don't need to hear these things. They need us to be present. They need us to listen. They need us to be available to help with practical things as they come up. Number three in your notes, understand the difference between sympathy and empathy. Both words come from the same root word, pathos, meaning pain or disease. And the sympathy is the older word and has become sort of changed in its meaning. We use them interchangeably, but sympathy is, becomes more typical, with, typically associated with pity. We send sympathy cards, for example, at funerals with, with, uh, using other people's words, which we may mean or not, and everybody understands that. Empathy, on the other hand, is a newer word, and it involves extending one, myself into putting myself into that person's position. It's often most effective when we have the actual experience of being in that person's position. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a lady um, who um, was a psychiatrist who published work on the grieving process. She published a book called On Death and Dying in 1969, and it became sort of the, the... textbook for dealing with people in grief. There's five stages of grief. If you've heard of that, that originally came from Kubler-Ross. And she was also instrumental in developing the hospice 
uh, ministry in America. And she tells a story about uh, a lady named Lucy, who was a hospitality manager up at, um, at uh, Fred Hutch Cancer Center in Washington. And uh, the um, hospitality house is kind of like a, a McDonald house where people whose family members are being treated go to stay. And she says that Lucy one day picked up the phone and there was a woman screaming at her from the other end of the line. And she was using profanity and she was clearly angry. And the reason her subject was because there weren't enough pillows in the room. And so Lucy picks up two pillows and she goes to the lady's room. She spends two hours with her while the lady explains to her her grief and her mourning and her terror at the prospect of losing her husband to cancer. Lucy could empathize. Lucy had lost her own husband to cancer. Empathy has, to, has uh, the bearing of putting myself into that person's circumstance. Two observations from that example. It may be that the trial that you are experiencing right now is by God's grace, by God's sovereignty, enabling you to minister to someone else in the future. God is the ultimate economist. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't waste effort. I can understand and believe as a Christian there's a purpose for what I'm going through, and maybe that purpose is to minister to someone else. A second observation is, if you choose to show empathy to someone who is mourning, it's best to say, I know how you feel only if you really do, if you've really been where they are, if you've really shared their experience. If you haven't, and you say, yeah, I know how you feel, their temptation, it may be too polite, but their temptation to say, no, you don't. You have no idea how I feel. Empathy can also be expressed in, uh, must be very hard, must be very difficult. You must be deeply grieved. I mean, to show empathy can, but to be honest about it. Number four, be present. Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend or go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. This past suggests that I shouldn't go to my brother's house when he is grieving. Um, excuse me, that um, not when I am grieving, but on my calamity, but there's nothing to preclude me from visiting my brother when he is grieving. In fact, Galatians, again, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The year before my family moved to Albany, my dad had the same tumor that my brother did and ultimately died of it. But he came to our house in Gig Harbor in Washington and stayed with us for the last year of his life. And during his stay in our house, we were visited by a number of family friends that they had known during their life. And there was one particularly memorable experience with a couple that my mom and dad knew named Bob and Marjorie Rupert. Bob and my dad had a lot in common. They were both veterans. Uh, dad was a veteran of World War II, and Bob was a veteran of Korea. And we often, I was talking with Ken, Bob's son, earlier this week, and we speculated that there was a lot of conversations that they had with each other that they wouldn't have with anybody else about their war experience. I heard very little from my dad about his experience in the war. 
They were both business people. Bob was a farmer. And Dad had, a fun- had two funeral homes. And both of them were leaders in our church. In 1971, the bottom fell out of the mint market. Bob farmed mint. And uh, he had invested significantly in a distillery for mint. And so when the bottom fell out of the mint market, he lost everything. He lost his distillery, and he also lost his tractors. He lost a lot of his land, and he lost his, uh, his equipment that he needed to farm other crops. So when the market collapsed, Bob went broke, and the bank took everything. So my dad had an old 1951 international truck. He purchased it in 1968 to haul lumber from Boise, Idaho to build two funeral homes. For whatever reason, about that time, the engine was, it it didn't run. Now, my, we Macintoshes have sort of an ambivalent feeling toward antifreeze. And my guess was the block was cracked. But I don't know. I'm just speculating. Anyway, so Dad bought a, got the truck, and he towed it to Bob's shop and he, with a spare engine. And they opened the doors in the shop. It started at 8 o'clock in the evening, and they pulled the old engine out. They put the new engine in. They put all the components together, and they had the thing running by 5 o'clock in the morning in time for Bob to take his asparagus crop to the cannery by 7. Now it's time to say goodbye. Bob and Marjorie drove over Snoqualmie Pass from the Yakima Valley over to our house in Gig Harbor. The five of us are sitting in my living room. I'm sitting right here on a couch. Bob and my dad are sitting over there at the end of the dining room table in two chairs. And Marjorie and my mom are standing here over by the kitchen. Marjorie and my mom are chatting amiably, catching up on news of mutual friends and acquaintances, what's passed between them. But Bob and my dad are sitting in their chairs, staring at the floor. For 45 minutes, they sat there, not a word passed between them, staring at the floor. Now, there would be, some people might say, what a pity it is that lifelong friends couldn't find something to talk about in such a circumstance. I beg to differ. Presently, Bob stood up, says, I gotta go. And he extended his hand. And my dad stood up and grasped his hand. My mom and Marjorie over here stopped talking immediately. The room became pin drop quiet. The two men continued to hold their grip. You could see rippling muscles under weathered skin from a lifetime of labor and perspiration. On and on the grass remained for two full minutes. And in that grass was the shared memory of a lifetime of millions of words, all of them final now. A lifetime of struggle, a lifetime of passion and friendship. Mere words would have been superfluous. Words spoken at that, mo- at that moment, in my view, would have diminished from the emotional power 
being shared between these two lifelong friends. Better a friend nearby than a brother far away. Oftentimes we have a picture of that truck, by the way. I still have that truck. 51 International. Better a friend nearby than a brother far away. Oftentimes the most effective thing that I can do for a person who is grieving is to be present and to keep my mouth shut and my ears and my eyes wide open. Next, um, in August 29, we'll be talking about the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, another interesting perspective on, on life. Let's pray, let's stand together as we pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures and for your teaching. And we confess with Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. We'd ask that you would bless us as we are dismissed, that we would go about reflecting on the teaching of the second beatitude. And I pray for those this morning who are mourning from loss or grief, that they would be comforted and that people in their lives would minister to them your grace, your hands, your comfort. Dismiss us now with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming.